Hello, everyone, and welcome to the February 27th edition of WorkComp Academy Weekly News. I'm Renee Folson, attorney with Floyd, Skarn, and Kelly. Thanks for joining us today. Let's get started with our litigation report. California lawmakers passed new law last year to limit lien claims by medical providers who are charged with or convicted of fraud-related crimes. SB 1160 provides that in the event a lien filer is charged with workers' compensation fraud, Medi-Cal fraud, or Medicare fraud, all liens are stayed pending resolution of the charges. And AB 1244 provides that if a vendor is convicted of fraud, then they are automatically suspended from treating in workers' compensation, and the administrative director is to create a list of all names of suspended vendors on their website. As a result of this new law, the DWC announced the suspension of seven medical providers from participating in the California workers' compensation system. The providers have been convicted of workers' comp fraud or have been suspended from the Medicare or Medicaid programs for medical fraud. The suspended providers have filed more than 8,500 liens with a total claim value of at least $59 million. But one convicted chiropractor has fought back, challenging the constitutionality of the two new laws. The Department of Justice announced that 48-year-old chiropractor Michael E. Berry of San Clemente, who owned and operated the Santa Ana Company's TriStar Medical Group and Jojasso Management Company, pleaded guilty in 2016 to a conspiracy account. And he admitted that he received $158,000 in illegal kickbacks for dozens of referrals to Pacific Hospital of Long Beach for back surgeries. Barry has also been indicted along with Kareem Ahmed, the owner of Landmark Medical, and 13 other named providers by an Orange County grand jury in 2014 for kickbacks and related offenses involving compounded medications. Much of that case was dismissed by the Court of Appeal in 2016. However, some of the charges have been refiled by the Orange County District Attorney, and it is not clear how much of the original indictment will proceed and what defendants will be involved. Nonetheless, chiropractor Barry filed a petition with the California First District Court of Appeal on February 15 seeking to have SB 1160 and AB 1244 declared to be unconstitutional, hoping that he and his company, TriStar Medical Group, can continue to collect workers' compensation liens. Among other theories, chiropractor Berry alleged that the lien stay provision violates his right to due process under the California and United States constitutions. Barry also claims that he will be denied his constitutional right to secure counsel of his choice in his pending criminal cases and pay his living expenses due to a lack of funds resulting from the stay of his liens. His attorneys concede that Barry resides in Dana Point, no doubt a very expensive place to live in Orange County, California. He did not get very far with his newly filed case. The Court of Appeal promptly issued an order which denied his petition as premature, given that a hearing on the suspension under Labor Code Section 
139.21 was scheduled before a hearing officer of the DWC, and the suspension is stayed pending the outcome of that hearing. The court also questioned whether the first appellate district was the proper place to file his petition, given that none of the petitioners reside or have their principal place of business in that appellate district. And now our crime report. Bay Sleep Clinic, its related businesses, Qualium Corporation and Amerimed Corporation, and their owners and operators have agreed to pay $2.6 million to settle allegations that they fraudulently billed the Medicare program. The allegations against them were set out in an amended False Claims Act complaint filed by the United States last August. According to the complaint, Mostafapur and Nader own Amerimed Corporation that was doing business as Amerimed Sleep Diagnostics and Amerimed CPAP Specialists and Qualicom Corporation, which operated 20 sleep clinics doing business as Bay Sleep Clinic. The government alleged that these defendants fraudulently billed Medicare for sleep tests performed by technicians lacking the licenses or certifications required by Medicare payment rules. And for sleep tests that allegedly were conducted at unenrolled and unapproved locations, the government alleged that the defendants regularly falsified documents to make it appear that a sleep test had been given at one of the defendants' two locations which had been approved by Medicare, when in fact the test had been conducted at another unapproved facility. Additionally, the government alleged the defendants fraudulently billed Medicare for medical devices in violation of Medicare rules and regulations that prohibit providers of diagnostic sleep tests from supplying medical devices and from sharing a sleep laboratory location with a durable medical equipment supplier. The False Claims Act allows for private persons such as Elma F. Dresser, in this case, to file actions to provide the government information about wrongdoing and then obtain a portion of the government's recovery. Dresser will receive about $545,000 of the settlement proceeds in this case. A former Orange County Sheriff's Department deputy was convicted and sentenced to six months in jail and three years informal probation. 36-year-old Nicholas Zappas, who lives in Laguna Niguel, pleaded guilty to six misdemeanor counts of insurance fraud. In addition to his jail time and probation, Zappas was ordered to pay nearly $35,000 in restitution to the county and $1,000 to the Workers' Compensation Fraud Assessment Fund. He was also required to dismiss his 2011 and 2015 workers' compensation claims with prejudice as a condition of his probation. At the time of his crimes, Zappas had been employed as an Orange County Deputy Sheriff for about 14 years. While working Harbor Patrol and engaged in a boat rescue in 2015, Zappas tripped over a fire hose and fell. He filed a workers' compensation insurance claim for injuries to his left shoulder, left side of his neck, and lower back. 
He was placed on work restrictions of no lifting, pushing, or pulling greater than 10 pounds by his doctor due to his complaints of pain. The Sheriff's Department accommodated the work restrictions and Zappas was assigned to dispatch. But during this time, Zappas engaged in CrossFit, which is a high-impact exercise with varied functional movements. He appeared on surveillance video while engaging in CrossFit, including lifting substantial weights in excess of 200 pounds, performing box jumps, burpees, squats, and other activities that were contrary to the limitations. None of this was disclosed to his medical physicians. And while under oath during his deposition, Zappas denied lifting anything over 20 pounds since the date of his injury. And he claimed under oath that he could not lift anything heavy, could not do squats, and could not run. Deputy District Attorney Pamela Lieto of the Insurance Fraud Unit prosecuted this case. Mark Turbeek, an East Bay workers' compensation attorney who also represents marijuana dispensary operators, appeared in federal court and admitted to two counts of the information filed in a federal criminal case pending against him. According to court documents, Turbeek paid kickbacks to Daniel Rush in exchange for referring him workers' compensation cases. Rush was charged in 2015 in federal court with honest services fraud and accepting payments in violation of the Taft-Hartley Act. Rush's trial is set to begin this March. The FBI and the IRS raided Turbeek's office in January 2015, and since then he has been cooperating with investigators. Daniel Rush was an official with the United Food and Commercial Workers Union that had established a cannabis division to organize dispensary employees. He was also closely involved in Measure D, the process to regulate medical marijuana dispensaries in Los Angeles, and also connected to legalization's most prominent pitchman, Lieutenant Governor Gavin Newsom. According to the allegations of paragraph 31 of the affidavit, Tarbeek admitted to the FBI that he had been paying kickbacks to Rush for sending Tarbeek legal work since 2004. Rush encouraged Tarbeek to acquire a workers' compensation law practice to litigate cases referred by the Institutio Laboral de la Raza. In exchange, Tarbeek gave Rush a credit card associated with his law firm and paid it off routinely. Also, Tarbeek allegedly agreed to share legal fees with Rush derived from his clients seeking permits to operate dispensaries in California, Nevada, and beyond. Tarbeek's attorney said that Mr. Tarbeek has been fully cooperative with the government's investigation of this case, and he regrets his actions and accepts full responsibility for his conduct. The case was continued to May for sentencing. California State Bar records reflect that there is no public record of discipline or administrative actions against Mr. Turbeek, and he remains an active member of the State Bar. And in regulatory news, 
On February 5, President Trump's nominee to be Secretary of Health and Human Services Representative Tom Price was confirmed by the Senate. So what will his appointment mean in the government's battle to thwart health care fraud and abuse? Most providers do not expect the federal government's scrutiny of health care reimbursement to diminish under the Trump administration and Secretary Price. But the focus on how to accomplish that scrutiny may shift. When asked by Senator Orrin Hatch what he believed the federal government should be doing in the fight against fraud and abuse, Price said he felt that the focus should be more on going after the truly bad actors that it, than it should be done in real time. This was direct reference to the CMS data analytics approach and data mining that is now beginning to be used to identify outliers and those providers who stick out among their peers as potentially billing improperly or excessively. This effectively moves away from the pay and chase model that has been the hallmark of Medicare audits pay the claims and then do a postpayment audit. More recent data-driven approach to identify improper billing makes good sense when comparing similar health providers with similar lines of service. Price then went on to say his data analytics approach should be used instead of trying to determine if every single instance of care was necessary, a direct reference to the current practice finding fault in individual claims for failure to meet medical necessity requirements. That is why, at this time, there is such a backlog of Medicare appeals stuck at the administrative law judge level. Last year, California Assemblyman Adam Gray introduced and successfully passed AB 1244 to crack down on medical providers who defraud the workers' compensation system. AB 1244 provides that if a vendor is convicted of fraud, then they are automatically suspended from treating in workers' compensation. And the administrative director is to create a list of all names of suspended vendors on their website. Last week, the Department of Industrial Relations, using the new powers from Gray's bill, announced that seven Southern California medical providers had been suspended. As AB 1244 was moving through the legislative process last year, Gray inserted and then quickly removed other language that seemingly relieved employers and insurers of responsibility for some small claims for cumulative trauma. This year, Gray has introduced Assembly Bill 221, a new bill that's similar in thrust to last year's abandoned language. The proposed new law, if passed, will add language to Labor Code Section 4600 that limits medical care for denied CT claims until AOE-COE has been resolved. Gray's office says his new law is just another effort to crack down on fraud, but lobbyists who work the issue believe there are other motives. Companies that represent medical providers in seeking workers' compensation payments for patients' bills have labeled it a maneuver to shed liability. Another theory is that it's an indirect slap by workers' compensation lawyers against labor unions 
for their 2012 deal with employers. But the California Applicants Attorneys Association denies paternity of the new bill. Labor killed last year's language and will probably kill AB 221 this year. Whatever its origin or fate, it indicates that in the next round of workers' compensation reform, cumulative trauma may be on the table. Cumulative trauma claims have been increasing rapidly and employers and insurers see them as fraught with fraud while unions are leery of any changes that could deny legitimate claims. The Office of Self-Insurance Plans has released new application forms for private, standalone, and group insurers as it continues to modernize and simplify steps for employers. The forms were revised to remove unneeded information and language that no longer applies, which significantly reduced the total number of pages required for submission. The Office of Self-Insurance Plans is a program within the Director's Office of the Department of Industrial Relations responsible for the oversight and regulation of workers' compensation self-insurance within California. OSIP is also responsible for establishing and ensuring that required security deposits are posted by self-insurers in amounts sufficient to collateralize against potential defaults by self-insured employers and groups. The forms can be downloaded for free from their website. And in medical news, a panel of international experts claim in an article published in the British Medical Journal that receiving low-intensity pulsed ultrasound to speed up bone healing after fracture has little or no impact on pain or recovery time. Their advice is part of the BMJ's Rapid Recommendations Initiative to produce rapid and trustworthy guidance based on new evidence to help doctors make better decisions with their patients. Every year, around 4 in every 100 people of all ages have a fracture, and up to 10% of these experience slower, complicated healing. As such, fractures have been a target for numerous interventions to aid recovery. Ultrasound was approved for fracture healing by the U.S. Food and Drug Administration way back in 1994 and is also supported by the U.K. National Institute for Health and Care Excellence. The device is commonly used in clinical practice. But some studies have shown that the potential benefits on bone healing are highly uncertain. So the BMJ's guideline panel made up of bone surgeons, Physiotherapists, clinicians, and patients with experience of fractures carried out a detailed analysis of the latest evidence. They judged with moderate to high certainty that this ultrasound has little or no impact on time to return to work, time to full weight-bearing, pain, the number of subsequent operations, or time to healing. As such, they unanimously recommend against use of ultrasound for patients with any bone fractures or osteotomy, which is the surgical cutting of a bone to allow realignment. And they suggest that future research should focus on other interventions that have a greater probability to speed up healing. 
After coming under fire from angry lawmakers in the wake of its recent decision to more than double the price of its opioid intervention drug, naloxone, Amphistar says that the FDA has handed it a rejection for an internasal version of the treatment. The Rancho Cucamaga, California-based biotech company, did not spell out all the reasons for the rejection. Or did it go into much detail in its statement? But the company cited the agency's questions about a user human factor study, device evaluation, and other items. Naloxone is a medication used to block the effects of opioids, especially in an overdose situation. When given intravenously, it works within two minutes, and when injected into a muscle, it works within five minutes. The medication may also be used in the nose. Naloxone was patented in 1961 and approved for opioid overdose by the FDA in 1971. It is on the World Health Organization's list of essential medicines, the most effective and safe medicines needed in a health system. Naloxone is available as a generic medication. But a pair of U.S. Senators, Susan Collins and Claire McCaskill, on the Special Committee on Aging, took Amphistar, Pfizer, Mylan, Adapt Pharma, and Calio to task last summer for hiking the price of naloxone as opioid abuse ran rampant in the country. Amphistar raised its price of naloxone in early 2015 from $19 a dose to $41, and lawmakers have criticized the players in the field for a tenfold increase in recent years, right alongside a national opioid addiction crisis. Amstar already sells naloxone in pre-filled syringes, as does privately held Calio Pharmaceuticals, which came under fire earlier this year for raising the price of its naloxone device, Evzio, by 550% to $4,500. Adapt Pharma Limited already has two naloxone spray formulations approved by the U.S. FDA. A new study published in the International Journal of Addictive Behaviors found that state programs that require physicians to check drug registries before writing prescriptions appeared to slash the odds of doctor shopping for opioid pain relievers. The study shows that prescription drug monitoring programs are a promising component of a multifaceted strategy to address the opioid epidemic. The researchers analyzed annual nationwide surveys of drug use and health when 36 states implemented prescription drug monitoring programs, or PDMPSs. The PDMPSs are state-run electronic databases designed to track prescribing of controlled substances and to identify people at high risk of using opioids for non-medical purposes. Every state except Missouri now has a drug monitoring program. Some states have mandatory programs requiring physicians to participate, and other states have voluntary programs. 
California is one of many states that maintain such a drug registry. It is the Controlled Substance Utilization Review and Evaluation System, also known as CURES 2.0. It is a database of Schedule II, three, and four controlled substance prescriptions dispensed in California. The study found that in states where physicians were required to check an electronic database before writing an opioid prescription, the odds that two or more doctors would be giving pain relievers for non-medical purposes to a single patient were reduced by 80%. States that implemented voluntary monitoring programs showed a 56% reduction in the odds of doctor shopping. States with mandatory prescription drug monitoring programs reduced the use of painkillers for non-medical purposes by an average of 20 days a year. And states with voluntary prescription drug monitoring programs reduced the use of painkillers for non-medical purposes by an average of 10 days a year. But public health advocates worry that an unintended consequence of drug monitoring programs could be that opioid users would seek drugs illegally and turn to heroin. But the current study found no evidence of a related uptick in heroin addiction. And with that story, that is all of our news and events for this week. Please check our website daily for news updates, past editions of our news, and much, much more. And remember, you can subscribe to our weekly news podcasts and special reports using your iPhone, iPad, iPod, or Android device by searching for the WorkComp Academy with your podcast software. Again, I'm Renee Foles, an attorney with Floyd, Skern, and Kelly. Thanks for joining us today, and please drop by again next week for more news. Thank you.